How can a scholar navigate transitions across multiple academic fields and communities? About this and many other important topics is this conversation with Laura Isabel Sarna in this new episode of El Café Latinx. What is the experience of being a Latinx or Latin American scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx, where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalif Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Facundo Suenzo, a doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx and Latin American communities across the Americas. These are our stories. Estas son nuestras historias. Esas son nuestras historias. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am delighted to have with us today, Professor Laura Isabel Serna. Professor Serna is a specialist on US and Mexican cultural history of the late 19th and 20th centuries. Also on issues having to do with race and media and media cultures and media industries. Professor Serna is currently an associate professor in the Department of History and in the Division of Cinema and Media Studies at the University of Southern California where she's been since 2010. Previously, she was an assistant professor in the history department at Florida State University in Tallahassee, Florida. And before that, she held an Andrew Mellon postdoctoral fellowship in the Humanities Research Center at Rice University in Houston, Texas. Professor Selma did her bachelor's degree in religious studies at the University of California at Berkeley a master's degree in Christianity and culture at Harvard Divinity School in Harvard University, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where she also did her PhD in the history of American civilization. She is the author of two books. There are no Hispanic stars, collected writings of a Latino film critic in Hollywood, 1921-1939, and Making Cinelandia, American films and Mexican film culture before the golden age. She's also the author of many articles and book chapters. And her work has received numerous awards, including the honorable mention for, from the Latin American Studies Association, the Mexico section for uh, her book, Making Cinelandia. Welcome to El Café Latinx, Laura Isabel. Thank you for that warm welcome. Um, I just want to say one thing at the top. So the the recent book making uh, there are no Hispanic stars. Um, I actually co-edited that with my colleague Colin Gunkel, who's at University of Michigan, um, and we are the editors and translators. We've written a really long introduction, probably too long, um, but we had a lot to say about what a person that we think of as the first Latinx media critic in the United States, a man who was an immigrant during at the end of the Mexican Revolution and then worked at La Prensa in San Antonio and then for La Peñón in Los Angeles where he wrote specifically about media. So and we're super excited about that book because it's the first time that his writing will be available in English 
And we're really hoping that people in lots of different fields can use it in their classrooms with their undergraduate students specifically. Absolutely. And taking cue from that, and thanks a lot for the additional information. We normally begin with a particular question, but I will I will get to that question later. Tell us about the story of that book. How, how did this new book come to be? Well, it's actually an interesting story. So both Colin and I, um, Colin and I finished our PhDs around the same time, and we were in different departments in different universities, but we wrote almost in parallel. He was writing about a period slightly later than the period I was writing about, um, and we share some common interests. And we had both mentioned this figure, Gabriel Navarro, in our work. Um, it was a he was someone that I hadn't known about, but he his writings in La Opinion in particular were really useful to me um, in terms of thinking about how to um, mind the film culture of Mexican immigrants in the 1920s. And he has a great wait, grand, grandson, his grandson, his name is Gary Sposito. And Gary is an emeritus professor at UC Berkeley of um, engineer, soil engineering, used to be called soil science, which is strangely where I did my work study job when I was an undergraduate. So I've known Gary for a long time, but our paths hadn't crossed, obviously. And Gary got in touch with both of us um, because he was seeking out more information about his grandfather. And we began this conversation between the three of us about, well, wouldn't it be interesting to produce a volume of translated works? And Colin and I were really excited about working together um, and collaborating, which was something that I hadn't done before at all. And Colin had only done maybe once or twice. And I think this is maybe very field specific in terms of we worked by ourselves often. Um, and so we essentially spent a good chunk of the COVID stay at home order time um, translating newspaper, write, his criticism in the newspaper, some of his advice columns, people would write in to him and ask questions about movie stars and um, three pieces of fiction a novella that he wrote that's not directly related to film culture, but we thought was important. And then a fictionalized autobiography, or biography rather, of a silent film star named Barbara Lamar. Um, this was one of several biographies that were published on the occasion of her death, um, but his was in Spanish. It's really interesting. And then a serialized novel that had appeared in La Prensa in 1927 that we couldn't find the ending to. And our, our copy editor was like, well, what happened to the end of this story? We said, we don't know. Um, but what was so interesting to us as we worked on this project was to think about the way that media is not separate from other cultural formations. So one of the things we write about in the introduction is that Navarro is a journalist. That's how he conceives of himself. But he's also a playwright, a musician, a composer. Um, he, he, an editor, he has all of these different jobs and in immigrant LA in the early 19, 20th century, all of these cultural formations kind of overlap. So the radio is related to the stage, is related to the movie theater, is related to the newspaper. Um, and we were really, we called it a migrant culture scape. We were trying to find a good word um, to describe what this looked like. So that was what we lit upon. And Gary has been really supportive um, as we've been going through this process. I think it, I mean, he is an academic, but 
Um, I think he might've been surprised at how long it took us, but we're finally done um, and we're really excited. And his uncle, Mike Navarro was able to share some photos with us of um, Navarro that we wouldn't have had access to otherwise because there's no um, archival repository um, and the family doesn't actually have that many papers, et cetera. So, so that was a really exciting project to work on. And I think, although there might've been one moment where we were like, hmm, this is very difficult to work with another person. Um, it actually ended up being really rewarding. That's fascinating, fascinating topic, fascinating project, a fascinating story. There are so many origin stories within the story that you have shared, including you sort of being work study, uh, you know, student yeah. at this, it's just, so what is your own origin story? What was the, the, the journey that led you to become a professor? Well, I was thinking this morning as I was like, oh, he's going to ask me about my intellectual trajectory. And I have sort of a wild ride. Um, I'm a first generation college student. My dad actually worked for 40 years as a physician's assistant, but he didn't go to college. Um, he got a certificate and it's kind of mind blowing. But at some point, people could practice medicine as a physician's assistant. Uh, with which is more common now, um, with only a certificate. And this was from a program that they started after the Vietnam War um, that took emergency medicine from the field and then trained people um, to in those same skills and then put them into medical clinics or other settings. And now phys physicians assistants work in all sorts of settings. Um, and my mom didn't go to college. So when I went to Berkeley, I was interested in art history and I started out in that major. I had a kind of discouraging encounter with a uh, professor. Um, and then I switched majors to religious studies because someone had said, oh, well, you can take art history classes and they'll count for religious studies. So it, if you look at that beginning, it doesn't seem like I would end up in the field of cinema and media studies at all. <laughs> um, but when I was getting my PhD, which was actually in American studies, um, I think they used to call it the history of American civilization, but they've modernized recently and have started calling it American studies like everybody else. Um, I began to be really interested in cultural history. And my whole first project really emerged out of an encounter with a newspaper article. So I was looking for something else and I saw this newspaper article and it was about women who were leaving Mexico to go to Hollywood to become movie stars. And I got really obsessed with finding out the story. Like I was like, I never heard that story. I never read anything that mentioned this or said that it was a possibility. Um, everything I'd read, you know, talked about girls from Kansas, maybe who came to LA to become movie stars or about immigrants, Mexican immigrants. Sorry, that's my dog. Um, Mexican immigrants who... Um, came to the United States and encountered film culture for the first time. So they come to the United States and they go to the movies and this helps them become Americanized, helps them acculturate. And even scholars of Mexican immigration would tell the story. And I thought when I read this article, I was like, oh, that's interesting because they must have been seeing something to make them want to come to Hollywood. And so I decided to find out what that was. And it took me down this really interesting path where I discovered things that I wouldn't have imagined when I started out. Um, and so 
I wrote a dissertation that, you know, weirdly was recognized by two different fields, cinema and media studies and American studies. Um, and I think the work really resonated with people in cinema and media studies. And so I began a whole process of kind of re-educating myself or educating myself anew in a different field. So, so it's art history, religious studies, American studies slash history. Yeah. Cinema media studies. So there are many transitions in there. Many transitions. I mean, all the skill sets are the same. Yeah, a lot of transitions. And I don't think that's how most students today imagine their own trajectories. Like, um, and I think also it was a different time. When I went to college, you didn't really have to know what you were going to study. You just went to college and then you took some classes and then you thought, well, this is really interesting. Like, I'm going to do more of that. And I think that's much less common today where students are really encouraged to know right away freshman year or before they apply what field they want to go into and what job they imagine having. Having, And I didn't even know that being a professor was really a job. I mean, I guess sort of knew. I mean, there were people who were professors who I encountered, but um, I remember talking to one of my professors in, I think she was in the history department or the religion department at Berkeley. And she seemed like she had a very cool job. And I was like, oh, well, maybe that's a thing you could do. <laughs> maybe, you know, um, so I just, so I guess I didn't have a very straightforward trajectory. And now I find myself back in a history department part-time um, in a way, um, but still have my appointment in cinema and media studies and um, think that that's a really important audience that I'm speaking to and with. So when you went to Harvard for your PhD, not for your master's, when you went to Harvard for your mm -hmm. PhD, you already had a sense that you wanted to become a professor or you were open to different alternatives at that time? I wanted to get a PhD. Um, I don't think, I mean, I think there was much less professionalization than there is today. Um, so I don't remember us. I remember my advisor saying, oh yeah, this is a pretty good seminar paper. You should clean it up and send it off. Um, but there wasn't the kind of explicit conversation about this is what it means to publish a journal article and here are the steps that you would take to do it. Um, it and I don't know if that's institution specific or if it was time period specific, but I, it was much less like that. And I was open to being a professor. I wasn't really sure what it involved um, per se. Um, and I had spent, uh, I think, three years of my graduate program, my PhD program in Mexico City. And I wasn't sure I wanted to come back from Mexico City um, because life there was pretty lovely. <laughs> so um, so that was, you know, I was um, unsure about that. But um, then I got my melon, a postdoc, and decided to pursue that opportunity and got the chance to live in Houston, which is an amazing city, strangely. Um, I don't think that's people's first thought, but I, I found it very vibrant um, culturally and kind of just kind of great mix of peoples, different kinds of people. Um, yeah, so I didn't really know specifically that I wanted to be a professor um, per se, but that was the track I was on. So, and I seemed to be doing okay. So I kept going with that. Yeah. So, so you're in Mexico City, you applied for the Mellon Fellowship and you got it. And I got it, yeah. And then 
you returned to the States. Mellon Fellowship is two years. Um, how was the job search process out of the Mellon Fellowship? Well, okay, so this is another anomaly. <laughs> um, I think this is less common today as well, but I already had my job at Florida State when I got my Mellon. And so they let me take my melon, which now I think it would be pretty remarkable for two years. Yeah, two years, um, during which time I could have, you know, and, and I did look for other opportunities. Um, but um, so that made having the postdoc maybe a little bit less stressful than I think that postdocs can be, um, because oftentimes people have limited term appointments, either as a visiting assistant professor or a postdoc, and they spend a lot of that time looking for the next position. And I was really fortunate to be in a position where I could look if I wanted to, but I also knew I had a job um, at Florida State. Did you apply for jobs in Mexico in parallel when you were applying for the postdoc and the, the job? I didn't. Um, you know, I'm a heritage speaker and I can give a talk in Spanish if I have to, but I, it always comes with a disclaimer about, you know, I'm, this is, I guess I'm not as um, literate a person in Spanish as I am in English. Um, although, you know, I can do research and I can, I can, I have given talks, et cetera, but I didn't know that that would be um, ideal. I kind of thought maybe I would do something else in Mexico and just stay there. But I don't know, a lot of different ideas at the time because I wasn't sure exactly how this was, this whole um, professor thing was going to pan out. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of unknowns, I guess. And then there was the whole, you know, then you have to get tenure. So it was like, you have to get the job and then you have to get tenure. And so that was... So, so how how were those early years of the tenure track for you? How did you experience the transition from student to postdoc to assistant professor? Well, um, I will say that this is getting very personal, but I had a baby my first year on the tenure track um, and I was unpartnered. And so that was a really motivating life change <laughs> because I was um, extra motivated, I guess, to get tenure because um, I thought it would be good for our family, our small family. And um, I think that maybe during the postdoc, if I had been thinking more about it, I would have sought out more mentorship. I maybe wasn't as productive as I could have been. Um, I seemed like that the writing the dissertation had been a very big push and I had rewritten it because um, I had finished it and then I had rewritten it, you know, again, in a full draft before I turned it in. Um, and I did do some research while I was on that postdoc, um, but maybe in hindsight, I would have done more, but, <laughs> um, but I didn't. Um, I had really internalized the idea of publishing, but I had... One of my mentors is a historian. She's an American historian, Liz Cohen, and um, she's about to retire. We we're planning her retirement party last week. And she kind of, um, I think this is a little bit different than the message that people get today, um, had really emphasized quality over quantity. Um, and she had encouraged us to really try to present our best work. So I guess um, 
even though I knew I had to be consistently productive as an assistant professor, I my own mode of working is to go a little bit more slowly um, and produce less, but hopefully, I you know um, produce better work that doesn't feel rushed to me. Um, I'm sort of a slow thinker, and those that's not necessarily very compatible with the tenure track. Um, but you know, my book came out and I had some other things going and I got a second Fulbright to go to Mexico again, this time to Merida, Yucatan, um, which I think, um, in Fulbright, a lot of people want to go to Mexico city. Um, and I think they get excited when people want to go other places. Um, and there's some places you can't go right now, uh, because they're considered dangerous by the state department. So, so. Uh, you know, it, I mean, I guess um, I, I acclimated to, and I remember having a conversation with someone at USC when I was on the tenure track and they said, oh, I, I could see that you've internalized the need to publish. <laughs> um, and I don't know if that was a compliment or not, but it was certainly, I'd certainly gotten the memo um, to publish. That's very interesting. Now you, you alluded now, a couple of times about sort of historical trends in academia, professionalization, high expectations of higher volume of output. Um, what do you make of those trends? Um, why have they arisen? Um, what are the consequences? What's your take on them? Well, I guess I'll, my take is a privileged one because I'm looking at it from a very secure position, right? At this juncture in my career, I can, you know, essentially take as long as I want to think about whatever I want um, with relatively mild consequences. You know, I might not get promoted very quickly, but that's kind of a personal trajectory decision. Um, I'm not sure the origins... I mean, I think some people would say the neoliberal university and its desire for us to be to prove our worth, right? Um, constantly. I mean, I know because I sit between two fields, you know, historians, it's like amazing if you can have one big idea in one big book. And then, you know, and if you have more, awesome. But like the idea is to have one big idea that comes out in a monograph. Um, but there is this constant kind of need to prove prove somehow that you're working um, and so much pressure on younger scholars. You know, I mean, I think in the 2000s, you know, um, at the end of the 2000s, when I was on, you know, kind of in this junior faculty mix, um, there was the idea that senior faculty could never have gotten tenure with the standards that they have today. And now when I look, you know, 15 years later, at young scholars, I think, wow, I could never have gotten tenure with the standards that we have today. You know, the idea that you should have journal articles before your dissertation is done. Um, the, the idea, you know, so, um, but I see that there is a lot of anxiety because there's so few tenure track positions. And even to get, for example, postdocs or visiting assistant professorships, one is competing with you know, people with lots of publications, with lots of credentials, et cetera. So it's almost like there's an arms race of credentials. Although, and I have heard younger scholars say though, that sometimes they're not particularly proud of things that they've published, but in de depending on your department and depending whether you're in an article-based field or a book-based field, 
there's a lot of pressure um, to get things out. Academic publishing is quite slow. Um, I'm of two minds. Like when I work with graduate students and I haven't had that many, um, I have three that have finished and two of them don't have academic jobs. Um, but the, you know, I try to get them to pace themselves. Yes, you want one article that's connected to your dissertation, but it's not the material in their dissertation. But at the end of the day, it's really the quality of the dissertation that is gonna kind of make you stand out. But but I also tell them you have to be excellent and lucky now. Like it's not enough to be excellent. There just has to be this kind of alignment of the stars where your skill set, your particular project, et cetera, aligns with this very rare and valuable unicorn tenure line. Um, that so I think it's unfortunate. Um, you know, I, I, not everyone thinks quickly and I think that's okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, another trait that seems to be increasingly valuable is interdisciplinarity slash multidisciplinarity. And people do this by design many times, younger scholars or students are enticed to do that. In your case, you have done this organically, you know, more than once, and your work sort of joins um, at least two central fields of inquiry. From your experience, what are some sort of do's and don'ts or lessons learned from a career, from an intellectual trajectory that joins fields? Now, because it's not only that you do, you, you're your work speaks to multiple audiences, but you integrate that in your writing, right? And you produce field changes doing that. So from, you know, your trajectory of having done this, what are some lessons learned in your well, case that might apply to others? I guess I can take an example of, I had a, a very accomplished student, um, Peter Labuza, who wrote this amazing dissertation and, it doesn't probably on the surface seem like we were a good fit. So he wrote a dissertation about the rise of entertainment law in the United States in the fifties and the sixties. Hmm. And um, he had come in with a really different idea. And then I taught him historical methods um, and he ended up really challenging our narrative about how the kind of shift to the new Hollywood happened, right? So kind of the popular account is, well, cultural mores changed, right? And they're competing against European films. And Peter said, actually, it's all about the lawyers and it's all about contracts. Um, it was a really great dissertation. He won a dissertation prize from um, the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. I was very proud um, of him. He now works for a union. Uh, uh, industry-related union doing research, which is great for his skill set. But he had to combine legal history and film history. And I encouraged Peter to really, to not be a dilettante, because I think there's a temptation to have a kind of cursory familiarity with another field and then call the project interdisciplinary. But if you want to really, so for example, to speak to film studies, it wasn't enough to like just have the object of research be about cinema. I had to like 
really relearn a whole other field of literature so that I could be conversant with what people were talking about in that field, what kind of debates was I entering into, et cetera. So I think um, you have to really take seriously both all the fields, let's say, if you're doing more than one, um, and not just kind of add it on as a um, window dressing, let's say. And I was really proud of Peter because a lot of the legal history thing, and, and he really pursued a lot of opportunities to present his work in those venues, to connect with people, to network and meet people who could guide him um, and give him guidance that I couldn't give him because it was legal history is not really my field, um, obviously. But, um, you know, so I think you have to take some initiative to maybe get out of your comfort zone um, and to pursue kind of mentorship or to pursue opportunities to get feedback to see if your work is resonating with people in those fields. Interesting. And another dimension in which your work joins disparate communities of, of practice is that you are a scholar of Latin America and you're a scholar of Latino, Latina, Latinx USA. Right, which and for some are two, you know, they, they work on one space or they work on the other space, but in your case, um, you work in both. How do you how do you conceive of the intersection of Latin America and Latinx USA? In particular, when it comes to media, media history, media practices, media industries. Well, I think that in the because I'm a historian and I'm really interested in this, the pre- 1960s. I mean, even getting to the 1940s was a real stretch for me because I was really, really just anchored in the 1920s, maybe the teens. I even wanted to go earlier. I was like, oh, what about the aughts? The aughts will be amazing. Um, and then I got pushed into the 1930s and 1940s as I think that there's um, a lot of circulation happening of, of media and of media makers and that this is a really interesting story that not a lot of people are necessarily that interested in, in part because they're, we tend to the field, and Colin and I wrote about this in the introduction of our book, tends to have these national boundaries and people become experts in X cinema um, or X media. And really, and it's probably, I'm sure it's true today, um, circulation is the name of the game. And it, so the, you know, the first book that I wrote, Making Cinelandia, you know, that's really about an audience that conceived of itself across a border um, because they thought of themselves as Mexicans. It didn't matter if they were in LA or if they were in Mexico City, they thought of themselves as Mexicans and kind of came to the media with that self-conception. So, so I think that having that interest in kind of where these kind of crossings and circulations are going is kind of what has always driven the kinds of questions that I ask, even in my new project, which is about Mexican cinema, kind of more properly in the 30s and 40s, I'm really interested in all the expatriate American businessmen who are involved, like the comings and goings of the State Department, right? So the idea that it's not something that happens hermetically in a national, like a kind of some sort of sandbox that is only Mexico, right? But all of these things are circulating um, all the time. So I think for me, that's the that's where the inter interesting questions emerge. 
And how- know, Mexico and the U.S. have such a special relationship. Right. Right. So, so I was gonna. So my follow up would be: We have experienced in the past X number of years a the rising centrality of Mexican cinema and Mexican cinema makers within the U.S., the mainstream of the U.S. film industry and globally, right? Yeah. Um, So how do you think what happened in the 30s, 20s, 30s, 40s relate to what is happening today? Mm, That's a great question. Um, Well, I mean, I think we still have these porous media borders, right? kind of different. So when I go to visit my cousins in Cuernavaca and we're watching Netflix, it's kind of the same, kind of not the same. Um, Some things you can watch, some things you can't, you know, because it's not in that market. So in that sense, in terms of the circular, just kind of circulation of media, um, there are some similarities and those um, differences are, you know, driven by the business model and the regulatory regime. Um, but I think that in terms of, I think maybe people have forgotten this kind of cross fertilization that happened earlier in the 20s and 30s, where people are going back and forth um, and becoming major players um, in different cinemas or working in one cinema. So just to take an example that's written about not by me, but my, by many people, Dolores Del Rio, right, becomes a big star in the United States, goes back to Mexico and becomes a big star there. So it's a similar story, maybe in a different direction, um, but this kind of building on one's career in one space and then moving to another space and letting that career unfold in a different direction, right? I mean, I think someone like Guillermo del Toro maybe has a little more um, creative freedom in the space of Hollywood than they would necessarily have in a national film production space, right? Um, That somehow that being able to cross, go back and forth um, and work in a specific way gives new creative opportunities. Um, And that's one way to think about Del Rio's career as well is that she goes back to Mexico and she has a, a very different and very exciting career there that she wouldn't have been able to have in the United States. That's fascinating. And, and, you know, that is really at the heart, so your work and your comments are at the heart of some of the key concerns for scholars who study, you know, the Latinx experience in the US, also Latin America, in particular in relation to media and cultural products. So where do you see or how do you see the current state of uh, Latino, Latina, Latinx media and cinema studies today? I think there are so many opportunities to do work. I think there are projects that people haven't even imagined. Um, and maybe in part because we're, we tend to be somewhat limited by these um, labels and boundaries, right? That if you do Latinx, it's this. And if you do Latin American, it's this, et cetera. But I think there are all sorts of questions um, that still remain to be answered. That's, you know, Colin and I have decided that we could each write 20 books probably, but I mean, we won't, we won't, but we could um, because the, the questions are enormous. And so I think there are a lot of opportunities for students to think um, across and within kind of regions or nations and comparatively um, 
And some of the, like the historical work is certainly difficult um, in a certain way. But for example, Riel Nowitzki has this great new project that's about the relationship between Mexico and France. Like that was a, a kind of genius um, thing to think about. Like what is the relationship between scenic lobes in Mexico in the 1960s and 70s and France? Um, I, it, you know, so I think there's just so many opportunities still in this field um, and questions to be asked about audiences. I mean, one thing that gets tricky is when we start to use the term Latinx to cover everything. Um, so I think it's really important to kind of be precise in our language um, and think really hard about how, because I think, again, I'm imagining being in Cuernavaca with my cousins and using the word Latinx and they'd be like, what is that? And like, why, yeah, why like that would never be an identity that they could embrace, you know? Um, and then you explain to them, okay, so when you come to the United States, then there's a whole different kind of social configuration and you might find that this is something that speaks to you um, because of how it is in this different environment, this different cultural and social environment. Um, but I think for students too, to think through like, what are, what are the consequences of using specific terms and how are they, are they, or are they not analytically precise? You know, do, you know, and when Colin and I were writing this book, you know, we were like, should we even use the word Latino? Cause that's not really a word that people used in the 1920s and thirties. Sometimes it would come up. But it, in, in the context of the writing, like the Latin race would come up, but they meant it in a, in a different way, I guess. It's hard to explain, but it's, it was, um, you know, we had a lot of tussles with the copy editor who I, I think wanted um, to understand more about what the kind of intellectual landscape was that this person was writing into in the political landscape. And it was quite different um, than the one we live in today. And so I think that's another kind of really being attentive to context. And that's applicable across the board, whether you're doing historical work or you're doing contemporary work is to think really carefully about context. Um, because I think it's just very, very tempting. But as I try to show my undergraduates, you know, how media companies use the term Latinx as a marketing tool and to avoid doing the hard work of like really thinking about their audiences. Um, it's a little bit lazy on their part and then gets popularized because they, they're like, oh, all these people are Latinx, you know, all these um, Antonio Banderas and uh, everyone. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's, it's laughable. Um, and it's, it's fun to get students to think critically about what the terms that we use mean and why, why, would we, why we use them and in what context. So, so I think there are lots of opportunities and I think um, things are more complicated maybe than we assume. And that's the exciting part, right? Is to delve into that complexity. Um, so given all of these opportunities and complications, if you have magical powers and could be granted one wish about how you would like the study of media, cinema, communication to change, what would you wish for? Oh, gosh. A professional fantasy. Hmm. 
this is going to sound maybe sound odd, but I wish that our non-Latin American Latinx colleagues <laughs> would their eyes would be open to the complexity so that they could guide graduate students like toward that kind of profound thinking about this. Um, that's maybe odd, but I would maybe start there, right? Because I feel like um, sometimes the guidance and you don't always need, I didn't have anyone who was an expert on, I mean, I had cultural historians, but you know, people can train you really well um, but they have to also be receptive to the kinds of questions that you're asking and the kinds of like, be willing to go with you on the journey, I guess, of, of answering those intellectual kind of preoccupations um, and seeing them. But I feel like sometimes there's a limited view of what Latinx media studies or communications or like what, it, what falls into that category. Um, and so that would be exciting. That's excellent. Laurisa, thank you very much for sharing your knowledge and experience with us. I want to thank our listeners for staying with us to the end. And I invite everybody to join us for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Thanks again, Laurisa. This was phenomenal. Thank you. You're welcome. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I'm Pablo Wojcicki, the host, and I'm joined by executive producer Facundo Swenson. <laughs>